lot of repetition with what we've already covered, and so we're going to highlight just some, some key uh, themes here. Uh, and so let me read uh, the verses here. They'll be on the screens uh, for us. Starting in uh, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws, who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us this, his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Skipping down to verses 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do, not take, offen do you not take offense at this. And then skipping down to verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, but just to give you a little bit of context, for those who maybe haven't been with us, we've been studying through the book of John. We've been in chapter 6 for the last several weeks. And John chapter 6 is really expounding on and explaining the identity and the mission of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so that's what we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. The first 15 verses of John chapter 6, Jesus performs a miracle. He provides bread for thousands upon thousands of people. Some estimate maybe 15,000 people in the wilderness. And then in John 6, 16 down to 22, Jesus then walks on water and displays his power. And in displaying his power, he also displays his great compassion. He comes to his disciples in the midst of darkness and in the midst of the storm, what we just sang about. And so what you have in the first half of John chapter 6 is this bread being provided and then life being provided in the midst of darkness. So you have bread and life. And then the rest of the chapter, verses 22 all the way down to 71, so almost 50 verses, Jesus then begins to explain and articulate and build upon what he has just done. That he has provided bread, that he provides life, and then what does he say in verses 22 down to 71? I am the bread of life. Now what's interesting is if you break up this, what's often called the bread of life discourse, verses 22 down to 71, what we looked at last week, what Jack talked about, what we looked at in those verses, Jesus spent most of the time comparing and contrasting the bread of death with the bread of life. The bread of this world, which is, Jesus says, perishable, 
which we have to work for, which, which takes and requires considerable effort and yet leads to death, versus the bread that Jesus provides, the, the, his own life that, that he provides, that's a free gift and, and through him becomes life. So you have this comparison between two different types of bread when we look at verses 22 to 40. And now this morning, as we look at verses 41 to 71, we have two different types of people, two categories of people. And the question of verses 22 down to 40 is, which bread will you pursue? Will you pursue the bread of death, the bread that leads to death, the bread of this world, the kingdom of this world, your, the kingdom of self, which leads to death? Or will you pursue the bread of life that Jesus offers himself? And the question then this morning is not simply which bread will you pursue, but which person are you? Are you the person that is chasing after the bread of this world, the kingdom of this world, your own kingdom? Or are you the person that will feast on Jesus? Which person are you? And that's what we're going to see this morning. There's really two, two categories of people. There's, there's three people in this, our, our audiences in the text, and they're grouped according to two categories. The first are those who grumble for the bread of death. They're grumbling. You'll see that three different times in the text here. They're grumbling for the bread of death. And then there's the other audience, and that's the disciples, the twelve, at the end of the text. Instead, they don't grumble for the bread of this world. They feast on the bread of life, Jesus. And they make this profound confession. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. These two different categories of people, and the question at the at root is, which person are you? Are you the person feasting on, chasing after, grumbling for the bread that leads to death, or are you the person that's feasting on the bread of life? Let's look at the first category, the first group of people. We have the grum- those that grumble for the bread that leads to death. In verse 41, we see, it says, so the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So this is the first group of grumblers here that we have, the Jews. And, and any time in the Gospel of John we read that, the, the phrase the Jews, it means the religious leaders. This is how John often refers to the religious leaders of this time. And so that's what he's talking about. Somehow in the midst of all of this crowd, which is not really unheard of, there's 15,000 people there, somehow this crowd now has has come into the midst. It, it, that you remember they're in Capernaum, and what we'll learn here at the end of the text is they're in the synagogue, so it's not, it's not unrealistic for these religious leaders to have been in Capernaum and to be in the synagogue, and, and, and what they're doing is grumbling, it says, under their breath, which is exactly what that phrase means. It means to murmur or to be discontent or angry and to speak under your breath. You know exactly what this is like. You, you've done this. You've done this when someone cuts you off in traffic. You've done this when someone says something you disagree with. You're, oh, I'll tell you, I'll show you, right? And that, that's exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what the word grumble means. They are grumbling beneath their, their breath. They're complaining. They're discontent under their breath here. Now, what is it that they're chiefly concerned about? What is it that they're primarily upset about and complaining about it's said twice in verse 41 and verse 42 it's that Jesus has claimed to come down from heaven that's what they're upset about they're they they see his claim as blasphemous they're upset about his claim and they're dismissing it outright there's no chance that this could be true in fact it says isn't he just the guy from down the street Joseph's son 
Like we know him. It can't possibly have come down from heaven. They just dismiss it outright. And, and it's said twice in verse 41 and, tw- and, a, and a second time in, I'm sorry, once in verse 41 and a second time in ver- verse 42. They grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42. Then they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They think they know everything there is to know about Jesus. They, 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 they think they have all of the answers. They, they think that they have a complete understanding of Jesus. He's just Joseph who lives, Joseph's son who lives down the street. He, he's just that guy. He's just that carpenter's son. And they dismiss him outright. Interestingly, though they are the religious leaders, they really represent many in our time, in our culture, that would, we would consider or maybe would consider themselves irreligious maybe some that would be here this morning that dismiss Jesus outright uh, he's just there, there's no there's a there's a simple explanation there's no supernatural here there's a natural explanation for who this guy is uh, he was a good teacher he was a good moral teacher he was he was influential and you just dismiss outright any claims any reality any possibility that Jesus could be actually the Messiah the son of God God himself That's what they're doing here. And they're grumbling about this complaint. What's fascinating is, it's said in verse 41 and verse 42 twice that this is what their complaint is, that that he's claimed to come down from heaven. In fact, in chapter 6, he says it 10 different times. I have come down. I'm the bread that has come down. I'm the bread from above. I'm the bread from heaven. 10 different ways, 10 different times. I am from above. I have come from. And what is John writing about? John chapter 1. What is the whole point? That God has come in the flesh. Chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus is making no bones about it. I'm absolutely I am. I am absolutely God. I am absolutely here in your midst. I have come, and this is what they are dismissing. It's not possible. This is just a, this is just a guy. This is just a son. This is just a carpenter's son. And they dismiss it outright. But there's a second audience in the text here that is also grumbling. And we see this in, in verses 60 and 61. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Now, we don't need to get confused here when it says the disciples. This is, uh, maybe you could consider this like little d disciples. These aren't, these aren't the twelve. The, these, these are, uh, disciple at its basic level means follower. And so this is, this is the larger, broader audience of, of people that have come to Jesus. And, and what have they come to Jesus for? And In chapter 6, verse 2, they came for signs. They wanted to see him heal people. And then down in verse 26, it says that they don't even want signs anymore. They just want bread. So what are they following Jesus for? They just want his stuff. They don't want him. They They want what he can give them, not all that he is. And there's a significant difference between those two things. And they are grumbling. Don't miss this. They're grumbling because his commands and his demands far exceed their expectations. They'll follow up to a point. They'll follow as long as they get what they want. They'll follow as long as everything aligns with what they want, their expectations, the way they think life ought to go, the way they think the Messiah should be. They'll follow up to that, but when he demands more of them, take me in. They say, no, 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 this is too hard for us. In fact, that's actually what the word means. Hard in the text means severe, severe or difficult. 
or excessive. Now, it's not simply because he's made some, some, a statement that seems confusing at, at the outset, which is to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. It's not simply that that, that statement has confused them. He's been speaking metaphorically the entire time. It's not simply that. It's that the, the command and the demand is, is too much for them. And if you think about it applica- application-wise, in our myths, in our context, this is, this is very similar to many people who would call themselves religious today. Is I want Jesus as long as he aligns with my expectations. I want Jesus as long as he fits my, my lifestyle. I want Jesus as long as he bends to me. But when I have to bend to him, that's too much. I'm not following him. I can't go there. And that's, that's what we're seeing here. They want his stuff. They want what he can give. They don't want him himself. And what we're seeing here in this text is that he must be taken in. And think about what, what, what Jesus is asking here. What we're learning in this text, and he says it again, he says, ten times I've come down, he'll say ten times, ten different ways, take me in. Eat, feed on, feast on, take in me, my flesh and my, my blood. And, and what is he saying by, by doing that? We must take in, and, and, and we, we can't miss what's being asked to do this. To acknowledge that Jesus is the one that satisfies means that we are simultaneously acknowledging that nothing else in this world will. That's a confession. Jesus, you alone are the bread that I need, is a simultaneous confession that nothing else will. When I, I said to my wife on our, our wedding day, and I said, I do, I'm also simultaneously saying I don't to anyone else. And that's, what we're, that's what's being commanded, that's what's being demanded, that's what's being requested here. Will you take me in? Which person will you be? Will you be the person that, that feasts on me, or will you be the person that feasts and nibbles on the world? the things of this world. And when Jesus asks this, they say that's too much for us. This is too hard a saying. To take him in means to submit to him, to, to submit our wills, our desires, our plans, our expectations to him. And that's too much for religious people. Religious people follow Jesus for what he can give them. They're very much like the older brother in Luke 15. Look, all these years that I've followed you, and yet you've never given me a goat. What's the motive of, of following and loving and serving the Father? They, he, he doesn't want the Father, he wants his goat. Why, did, why are they following Jesus? They, don't want, they wanted miracles, now they want bread, and now he's saying, give me your life. Whoa, 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 Jesus, you've crossed the line. Isn't that what we do with our finances? I'll follow you until you ask me to do something with my finances, or my possessions, or my stuff, or my time. Or my life. I'll follow you up to a point, Jesus, but I, I, this whole give, me, give you my life thing, that's too much. And yet that's what's being requested here. And what they say is, can't we just have some bread? <laughs> like that's all, we just want the stuff. That's their reaction. They want Jesus for what he can give, but not Jesus for all that he is. What's fascinating is both groups, both groups of grumblers, are, are eerily reminiscent of Israel in the wilderness. And again, we've said it throughout this chapter, this is, this is John is using language from, from Exodus and, and, and the Old Testament where Israel exits Egypt and goes into the Promised Land. Listen to the different things that, the, uh, it, that Israelites grumbled for. They grumbled over the water that they actually were given when they reached the wilderness, Exodus 15, 24. 
They grumbled that they didn't have bread or water in the wilderness, Exodus 16, 2, 17, 3. They grumbled about their circumstances and the bread that they were given when they finally got it, Numbers 11, 1. And then they grumbled about the difficulties of, of obtaining the land and taking the, the promised land, Numbers 14. At every turn, they were dissatisfied. God provided at their every turn, and at every turn, they were dissatisfied. It was never enough. They always wanted more. Why? Because they didn't want what God provided. They wanted what they wanted. In, in this context, think about what they're complaining about. John chapter 6. Think about what they're complaining about. You're the Messiah. You're not the Messiah we want. You're not, you didn't come to take over Rome and conquer Rome. You didn't come to, to meet all our demands, and you're not giving us bread. You're not the Messiah you, we want. We're, you're not the king that we want. You don't give us the stuff that we want. What are they being in this moment? They are acting as functional saviors and gods of their own lives. We know what will satisfy our soul. We know what is best for our lives, and you're not it. What I determine will satisfy my soul and satisfy my life. That's what I, that's what, that's what I need. What I, they're acting as functional saviors and gods of their own life. They wanted a Messiah, but the Messiah that God provided didn't meet their expectations, so they complained. I think about myself, and I think about us, and isn't that true of us all the time? That Jesus, when he doesn't align to our expectations, we're disappointed, we complain, we're grumbled, we, we grumble. What? We, we act like we're, we deserve something from him. What we deserve is death. What we deserve is wrath. What we deserve is to be crushed because of our rebellion. But instead, what we get is a Savior, compassionate, benevolent, and caring, and kind, and loving. And He gives His life on our behalf. What do we have to complain about? At root, they think they know what's best for their lives. In this context, what we're being given here is, and it's profound... Jesus is really given, giving us, from a human perspective, the reason, he does it in verse 45, the reason that they reject him is because they're rejecting God himself. In verse 45, he quotes Isaiah 54, 13. It, it, it says, uh, I'll read 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. There is profound theological weight here. There's profound theological teaching here. We're not going to go into it. What I'd recommend is you go back to listen to the, to the message on John 1, 10 to, or 9 to 13. Go back, go look at the study guide this week. We provide a little footnote there to kind of hash out some of this stuff. But look at what he says in verse 45. The reason, and he's giving from a human perspective, the reason they reject him, the reason that they're grumbling, the reason they don't want what God is providing, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. And everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Why is it that these two groups of people are grumbling, though God has provided them for them miraculously in so many different ways, and now he's providing them the Messiah? It's because they don't listen to God himself. They think that they are God. Functionally, they're acting as Savior and God. How, how is this? In Isaiah 54, 13, which is what's being quoted here, what, what's talked about is that God will teach his people. God will speak. And what Jesus is saying here is God has spoken and you're not listening. 
God is speaking to you and you refuse to listen. You're looking past him. You're looking over his shoulder. You don't want what God is providing. You want what you want. That makes you God. This is not the first time that Jesus levels this accusation. In fact, we go back to chapter 5. And that's exactly what he says to them in verses 37, 38, 39. Is that the Father has spoken. All this evidence has been given to you. My signs, my works, me. I've come down, John the Baptist. And God the Father himself has spoken and you refuse to listen. How has God spoken? In his word. Verse 39. You've had, you have the entire Old Testament that's been pointing to the Messiah coming, giving you all the evidence, giving you all the things that I, he will do. And guess what? I have fulfilled all of them. What you're rejecting is not simply me, the Messiah. You're rejecting God the Father who has been speaking to you throughout history and, com- and, and proclaiming to you, and you don't even want him. So the only result is, the only thing that you want is to be God yourself. This is exactly what Paul says. In Romans chapter 1, that though the, the everything that is God and has rev- God has revealed himself through everything and the creation declares that he exists, we suppress the truth. We push down the truth. Meaning we hear the truth, we know the truth, it's clear and obvious is what Paul says, but we reject the truth. We suppress it. And what, is, what happens? And we exchange the creator for the created. We worship the created over the creator. What's happening in this text? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Can we have some bread? I, we don't really want you. We want your stuff. And that's what's happening here repeatedly throughout this text. We have these two different people lumped in, categorized as grumblers. They're complaining under their breath. At the end of the day, they simply don't want the bread of life. They want bread. They want physical provision. They want what Jesus can give them. They don't want him. They want a different bread. They want the bread of this world, the Messiah of this world, the kingdom of this world. And here's the tragedy, and they don't see it, and Jesus is waving red flags everywhere in front of them. What you want leads to death. What they desperately want leads to death to death and he said it repeatedly throughout chapter 6 he's proclaimed it throughout the entire gospel of John John's proclaiming that now why did he write the gospel of John so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God and by believing or in believing through him on him trusting in him we would have life life eternal Uh, it's interesting they, what they desperately want actually leads to death. We found out on Addie Wynn's first birthday that she has food allergies. And, and to be quite honest, I kind of thought food allergies, forgive me for thinking this, but I thought food allergies were not that big a deal. But then she stuck her hand in her first birthday cake, her smash cake, and wiped it all over her face, and she swole up like the Michelin man. And so we give her a bath, we, 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 we give her some, I, we, I don't know what we do, we just clean her up and we freak out, and then we take her in, we get her tested, and it turns out she's allergic to egg, which was in the icing, and she's allergic to peanuts in the icing. And, and so if you drop a peanut, m- me and my wife are scouring the ground, looking around for peanuts, right? Because we know that if she picks it up, because she doesn't know any better, she could die. We have an EpiPen now, and I don't, don't want to stab her with an EpiPen, but I'm going to have to do that someday if she takes in an egg or she takes in peanuts, What she may want 
will or could lead to death. What they want leads to death. And I think about, in practical application, what they are revealing is the heart of man. We think we know best. We think we understand what will satisfy our souls. We think we can rule our lives sufficiently. We think we can satisfy our souls, or we, th- we label things. That thing will satisfy my soul. But it always leads to death. And this is all because of Genesis chapter 3. We've, re- we've talked about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. And now because of the fall of man, we look horizontally for joy and pleasure and meaning and value. We look horizontally in this world and we try to squeeze out of things in this world to give us meaning, value, purpose, identity, hope. When all along, that's only meant to be satisfied and fulfilled and provided in God alone. So we look horizontally for all these things and what's, what's tragic and ironic about it is, is some of us will squeeze our spouse to death or squeeze our children to death or squeeze our jobs to death trying to squeeze out of them every last drop of meaning and purpose and hope and joy and identity and we'll squeeze them to death, crush them and they'll never satisfy. And if we don't squeeze them to death and, and, and don't crush them to death trying to satisfy our souls with those things if we don't do that then we become bitter it's either or sometimes both why do we become bitter because when we squeeze them and they don't provide we get angry at them we we get angry you're not you're not meeting all my expectations we you're not satisfying my soul you're not giving me the thing that i want couple that all of that activity with the world that we live in and every message the world that that we live in says is hey that thing will give you satisfaction joy meaning purpose you need more of it. So you, you had these two things combining our natural bent towards independence from God and the brokenness of the world combining, and you have these two things combining, and the result is spinning our wheels in distraction, spinning our wheels in discontentment, spinning our wheels in disappointment, and we run from one thing to another to another for fulfillment, and we miss the one thing that will satisfy Jesus has been raising that red flag and proclaiming repeatedly, I am the one thing you need. I am the one thing that will satisfy. I'm reading a book right now, it's, uh, Precious Remedies uh, Against Satan's Devices, and it's written by Thomas Brooks, who's a 17th century pastor, and it's so good, so rich and, and, and thick. And he says this, He says, the heart of man is a three-sided triangle which the whole round world, circle of the world, cannot fill. As mathematicians say, but all the corners will complain of emptiness and hunger for something. Have you ever tried to put a a square peg and you can't do it in in a, I guess you could do it in a square if it's big enough, but in a triangle, this is what he's saying here, try to put it in a triangle, what happens? Those corners are not filled. And so what we're doing with everything we chase in this world is we're trying to put a square peg in a triangle and the the problem is there's still voids in the triangle. We we still lack something, so we're never fully satisfied. We want more, we need more to to fill up. He's simply repeating Augustine. Augustine says this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We were created to be full. We were created to be satisfied, but we were created to be full and satisfied in God alone. 
Because of the fall, we reject being full and satisfied in Him. And now we seek things that will never fully satisfy. We will always be restless and longing and looking for more. And that's what's happening here. They want His stuff or they want another Messiah. They don't want the Messiah that God has provided. He doesn't meet our expectations. So what then is the cure for our aching hearts? What is the thing that will quench our thirsty souls and satisfy our hungry longing? What is the answer and the proper response we must give to Jesus? So I said ten times he says, I have come down. He says in chapter 6, ten times that we must take him in. He says some kind of variation of eat or feast or feed on. So ten times I've come down, ten times take me in. Twenty times in chapter 6 he says, because I am life. Some variation of, take me in and you will live. Feast on me and you will live. Eat my flesh and you will live. Don't take me in and you will die. 20 times. So, I have come down, take me in and live. Live, 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 live. 20 times in 71 verses. I think he's trying to make a point. He is making a profound point. I am, I have come Take me in, receive me, believe me, embrace me, and you will live. Don't do that, and you will die. Don't do that, and you will live perpetually unsatisfied. And so this is what Jesus is teaching us. We must take him in. We must feed on him. Now, let's talk about this metaphor that Jesus is using, because sometimes it's really confusing. It's kind of gross, and it sounds terrible. In fact, many people accuse the early Christians of being cannibals because of this. Jesus is not teaching cannibalism. He's not teaching that here. I think you know that. It's shocking the audience doesn't know that. It's kind of like, I get it, but it's still a weird thing. Why would he say it? Because that's what we have to do with him. We must receive him, take him in. He's using a metaphor, and we use this metaphor all the time. Some of you have said this about my little baby girl. I just could eat her up. Do you mean you want to eat my baby? No, you don't mean that. You mean you want to just scoop her up and squeeze her and hold her and enjoy her. We say this about movies. We go, I'm going to take in a movie. Nobody really talks like that anymore, but I'm going to take in a movie today. Or I'm going I'm to take in a lecture. Hey, chew on this. We say that all the time about ideas. It means to take it in. It means to consider it. It means to... To, to rehearse it, to, to, to squeeze it, to enjoy it. We say about books, man, I devoured this book. It was so good. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do here. here here's, this is fascinating. This week I looked, and I had heard this in a documentary I was watching, and this guy wrote a, a book. It's, it's a five-volume book, 2,600 pages, study of bread. $625 available to you on Amazon.com if you'd like to go buy this today. Full of pictures, full of diagrams, full of instruction, full of history of bread. The history of bread is outlined in this. How to make bread, how to put it in the oven and cook it right, take it out early so that it doesn't, whatever. I don't know. All the 2,600 pages on bread. Here is the thing that Jesus is teaching. It's one thing for us to know about bread. It's one thing for us to study bread. It's another thing for us to even understand how bread is made. It's radically different to take it in and to savor it, to taste it, to enjoy it, to embrace it, 
That's what we're being invited to do. Man, what practical application. If all we do is study 2,600 pages about bread but never take it in, how worthless is that? That's what we're being told here. It's not enough to know about bread. It's not even enough to be in proximity to bread. That's what we learn here. Judas was in proximity to bread. These larger crowds were in proximity to bread. The, the Jewish leaders were in proximity to bread, but they did not take the bread in. They did not embrace the bread. Remember, when we say receive and believe, that's what it means. Remember, when, when the disciples were on the water, they were glad to take him into the boat. It, it means to embrace to cling to, to take in, to, to eat, to consume, and to, and to base our entire life and existence on it. So in other words, if I don't get this bread, I will die. My whole life depends on this. And this is what's fascinating, is this text shows us two groups that are grumbling, and then we see this other group. In contrast to Jewish leaders, and the crowd, there's this other group, there's, there's the 12, and they respond radically different. You have the Jewish leaders that grumble, you have the larger crowds that are grumbling under their breath, and then you have the 12. They didn't grumble, they didn't complain, instead, they were grateful, they received, they believed, they feasted on, and what do they feast on? They feasted on the bread of heaven. Verse 67, Jesus turns to them, to the 12, it says, and he says, do you want to go away as well? Now this is fascinating because this is telling. Because the language that Jesus is using here, the language of the question, the original language, it, it means do you want to abandon, go astray, and withdraw to die also? What do you think Jesus is trying to say? It's another way of what he's been saying. It's the inverse of what he's been saying. If you receive me, take me in, you will live. Do you also want to walk away like all of these other crowds and go to die? Do you want to chase after the, the things of this world, the, the Messiah of this world, the kingdom of this world? Do you want to go there and, and, and go withdraw away to die? And look at what Peter says. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. His, his confession for the disciples is so profound. He, listen, here's what he's saying. Abandon you? Go astray from you? Give, give up you? You're the answer. You're life. It, Listen, everything else in the world appeals to my senses and to my emotions and to my desires, but all of it leads to death. Jesus, you are life. Go away from you. Abandon you. He's making this unbelievable confession. Here's the other. There's so much in this. He's making a confession that Jesus, everything in this world appeals to me, appeals to us, but you're the only one that satisfies. But the other thing that he's saying is Jesus the desire to be my own savior is there, but I can't save myself. I can't rescue myself. You are the savior. Look at what he says. He says, you are the holy one of God. That is a unique, profound confession about a title and about uh, Jesus himself. What, what did the Jewish religious leaders reject? Jesus said ten times, I've come down. Jewish, Jewish religious leaders say, 
They, they grumble under their breath. He's just Joseph's son. He can't, be, he can't be the Messiah. What is Peter saying? You're the Holy One of God. You're the one that, that God has sent. You're the Messiah. Simultaneously, he's confessing, I am not. We are not. You're the one that satisfies. We are not. You're the one that rescues. We do not. You're the one that provides life. We do not. Nothing in this world will. And this is this text, this entire discourse forces us to ask the question, which one are you? Which one am I? Am I a grumbler seeking after the, the treasures and pleasures of this world, nibbling on the things of this world, being satisfied on the things of this world, as C.S. Lewis says, to, to be far too easily satisfied by the things of this world, looking past Jesus the Messiah, looking past the one that will satisfy, looking past the, the, the one that, that gives life, thinking that I am the one that gives life, I'm the one that satisfies? Or are you like the twelve? Are you making the profound confession that, that no, Jesus, you satisfy, you are life, I, everything else is death, nothing will satisfy, I tried to play the Savior, but no, I'm a, I'm a terrible Savior, you are the Savior, you're the one that rescues, you're the one that provides, you're the one that comes through. Which confession is yours? Is this your confession this morning? Have you acknowledged that that the bread you're chasing will not satisfy, but the bread of life, who is Jesus, is the only one that will satisfy. Have you acknowledged that, that I've been trying to act and live as a functional Savior and God of my own life, and, and it's not working out so well, and it never will, but Jesus, you are the only Savior, and you are the only God that can rescue my soul. Is that your confession this morning? That's what this text is forcing us to ask. For those that have made this confession, this, this transfer of trust from self and, and things of this world to Jesus, now the question for us becomes, the second question of the text is, are you regularly feasting on him? Or are you continuing to nibble away at the world? Nibble, nibble away at little things that will never satisfy. Because, because as, as in the Christian life, we will because of the bent towards trying to think that we know best, we'll constantly resist, even though we've submitted to Jesus as Savior, it, it's, it's a possibility that we would resist Him and we'd chase after other things. I love Thomas Chalmers. He, he wrote uh, a, a book called, uh, really it was a sermon turned into a little book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Uh, again, a 17th century Puritan pastor, and he, he they had great titles back then, and he said, Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In it, what he talks about is that we, somewhat of what I mentioned about Thomas Brooks, he, that we run from thing to thing to thing. And what we do is we say, man, this microphone stand, this will satisfy my life. Nobody actually says that, but this is an ex example and an illustration. This microphone stand, man, this will satisfy my life. Maybe a musician would say that. This microphone will satisfy my life. I desperately need this new microphone. Oh, my gosh, this will satisfy. It's not satisfying my life. I need this water bottle, man, this water bottle, this will satisfy my life. Man, this will satisfy my life. And we run from thing to thing to thing. And, and Thomas Chalmers says what we need is the expulsive power of a new affection. What we need to recognize is, is like Isaiah, we need just to recognize this microphone is an idol and this water bottle is an idol and it it's only has the power that I give it and it is nothing else. It's a created thing and it is not God. It will never satisfy my soul. What I need is something bigger. 
Thomas Chalmers says we need Jesus. He is the expulsive power of a new affection. That he is the God-sized triangle that fills up the triangle that we're trying to fill with our hearts and souls. That he is the one that satisfies. And, and he is the one that fills up. But in the Christian life, we have to repeatedly confess that. We think that the gospel, that that's getting the gospel, and we need that, but we forget that we have to live that way. We have to constantly confess that. Jesus, I'm, I'm tempted to worship this chair that will give me satisfaction, joy, and meaning, and pleasure, but no, it will not. Only you will. That is the l- Christian life. We must regularly diet on, feast on Jesus, and where is the greatest way and place that we have but the Word of God? We feast on Jesus as we study the Word of God. John Piper, in his book, uh, Hunger for God, which I'd highly recommend, it's, it's, a, it's on fasting, and he, he talks about the fact that we, he builds on C.S. Lewis's quote that we're far too easily pleased. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied, it's because you've nibbled so long at the table of this world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. Is that true of you this morning? Then what do we do? We confess. We repent. We acknowledge. I've been nibbling on, and I've been satisfied by, and that thing will never satisfy. That's not enough, though. I don't go just there and talk about the negative of what does not satisfy. I look to the expulsive power, the greater affection, the greater one, the one that will satisfy Jesus. And I feast on him. And I confess that and I continually do that. Repeatedly. That is what it means to feast on the gospel. The next few months we're going to be talking about in our men's breakfast the, uh, the book Gospel Primer. Maybe you're sophisticated and maybe it's supposed to be primer. I don't know. But it's a gospel primer for new Christians. Uh, and he talks about how to do this. And, and he says this, On the most basic level, I desire fullness. He says, but, but fleshly du- lusts seduce me by attaching these things to my desires, and they exploit the empty spaces in me. And they promise, they, they promise that everything I'm chasing will fulfill me. When my soul it sits empty and is aching for something to fill it, such deceptive promises are extremely difficult to resist. But the answer, the solution to mortifying fleshly lusts is to eliminate the emptiness within me by replacing it with fullness. And I only ever accomplished that by feasting on the gospel. Th- there's bread that's being offered here that will satisfy our souls. And they want little trinkets, little pleasures. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one that satisfies. What we have here in this text is the answer to the, the, to the initial question. Remember how this whole story started? Jesus asked a question to Philip in the crowd with all the thousands of people. He said, Philip, where are we going to buy enough bread to satisfy all these people? Where are we going to buy bread so that all these people may eat? The answer has been provided by Peter at the end. Jesus, you are the bread. You are our only hope. You are the one that satisfies my soul. You are the Holy One of God that has come down. Is that your confession? And is that your regular daily practice? That's the question that we're being asked this morning. Which person are you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. What a 
what so much profound, amazing, practical, applicable, Lord, I'm tempted all the time to chase after less, lesser treasures and lesser pleasures, possessions, success, title, recognition, approval, control. Go down the laundry list. Lord, I'm tempted regularly to, to find joy, identity, meaning, pleasure, everything in those things. Lord, but I acknowledge this morning and I confess together with my brothers and sisters here, those things will never satisfy. Only you will. Lord, give, give me, give us the strength to meditate on that truth and that reality and to, to, to make that our regular daily practice of confession. I'm tempted to chase this thing, but it will not satisfy. Only you will, Jesus. And then to meditate on how infinitely more enjoyable and, and how, how much of an infinite greater treasure you are. Lord, as we studied your word this morning, help us meditate on it. Help us to fix our eyes upon it. Help us to delight in it. And help us not to forget. As Psalm 119 says. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.